Um, we're going to be taking just a moment, before we dive into the scriptures, we're going to be taking a moment just to pray, um, kind of focusing our attention on, on two things. And when we think about prayer and we look at how we can be praying collectively as a people, we're going to be kind of focusing our attention on generosity today. And as we think about generosity and looking at our hearts and asking what can we give and how can we be lead with gratitude in the daily walkings of everyday life with our Lord, there's another element that I want to bring to your attention. And this is, this is something that we haven't necessarily mentioned in a few months. And it's these families that we've been praying for and that some of us have been sponsoring from Afghanistan. There's these families from Afghanistan that we have joined alongside a ministry of several months ago, um, a dozen or so families that were trying to make their way out of Afghanistan to um, find different points of refuge in the States and some of them being here in Seattle. And the good news is, is that we've had several families have come and made their way out of Afghanistan into the United States and they're making their way into Seattle. But the bad news is, is that only one family so far has made it. And there are three families that our church, uh, different collective families have sponsored. And we want to lift up these families. There's two still in transit, still waiting to be um, kind of coming into the city. But thank God that there is one family that's already here that has been here and we, we're going to continue praying for them. But we want to think about how we as a church can continue to support these families that are trying to make their way through such a difficult and trying time in their lives. So would you guys pray with me in that direction? Father, we thank you for this morning that we can come before you and we can worship your name. God, we, we are glad to be together as your church, being salt and light to this city. Father, I pray that within each of us today, you would be opening up this topic of generosity and challenging us of how we as Christians, as Jesus' followers, can be more generous, how we can lead with sacrificial giving, with sacrificial generosity, to do things that challenge us so that we might grow even closer to you. God, we thank you for Jesus being that ultimate example of a, for us of, of what it means to be generous and how he kept his eyes fixated on you as he walked on earth. But God, as we think about that and we think about the refuge that Jesus provides us and the generosity he evokes within us, we pray for these families from Afghanistan, God these families that we can't name directly by name, but that we can certainly pray, pray for as you know each of them individually and you care about them. Thank you, Lord, for the family that's made it here. Thank you, Lord, for the family that's, that's come, that's beginning this new chapter of their lives. But God, we pray for those other two families who are still in transit. We pray that you would move miraculously through the government we pray that you would move miraculously through the, through the logistics. And we pray that those blessings that these families would receive would happen to the other dozen families that are trying to make it as well. God, we bring these families to you, knowing that you will do 
amazing things through them and to them. So we ask these in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 8? We are jumping back in to our Luke series. There was a moment of applause to which I would say yes and amen. I love Luke. I love the book of Luke. We had, before we jumped into our summer series, we were in Luke and we had titled it, uh, titled this series, A Story for Sinners and Sufferers. Because Luke, if you, if this is, you've kind of joined us during the summertime and this is your first time jumping in with us, Luke is a fantastic, amazing gospel that shows Jesus from the earth up. Meaning, Luke's depiction of Jesus is one that factors in the very raw, real, relatable, everyday moments of life. The hardships that we go through and how Jesus meets them with grace and with compassion and how he lifts sinners and sufferers like you and me into his love and into his grace. And our focus this morning is going to be in verses 40 through 56. So if you got to chapter 8, maybe you need to turn the page because this is at the very end of that chapter, of chapter 8, where here we see that Jesus displays his power over sickness and death to strengthen our faith. I think something that many of us can ask over a period of time, whether you're a, a Jesus um, follower, whether you, you identify as a Christian, or maybe you're taking this in for the first time, is the question that may come up is, how does Jesus strengthen my faith? In the everyday stuff that I go through, in the difficulties and challenges that I have, how does Jesus help? I think it's a fair question. That's a good question. And here in this passage, we get to see two characters a desperate father and then a desperate woman seeking that very question as they find these faith stories, as they find their faith stories fused together in the ministry of Jesus. The most relatable of these two neither has any idea of what Jesus is doing. And I love that for this passage. There's a sense of urgency in both of them. There's desperation, clearly, in both of them. But neither of them has any idea what Jesus is doing. And Jesus just seems a little too content to be taking his time. Something I hope that all of us can identify with. And so it kind of comes back to the question of, if Jesus is perfectly content right now, right now, how is it that he's going to strengthen my faith so that I can believe it? I think this passage is for us. Two people who have urgent needs. Jesus doesn't seem to pick up the pace. But doing so, Jesus reveals to us, through this story, how faith is a showcase of his action, of his grace, and of his power. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to receive the word this morning. I pray, God, that you would 
speak to us and you would reveal to us the ways that you are showcasing Christ in our lives, even in the hard stuff. And I pray, Lord, that we would be strengthened in our faith as we become encouraged by this passage and what it means for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me draw your attention first to this opening part. This is verse 40 through 44, where we're introduced to a tale of faith by two desperate characters that I was talking to you about, and they're just coming on the scene. So this is verse 40 through 44. Let me read this to you. It says, When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had only one daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. And while he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. This is Jesus. Verse 43, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. So we're going to pause there. Something I ask myself when I'm reading this, and something I I, want to encourage you to ask yourself when reading this, when you're reading about different people, especially different kind of what seems like random characters, is we should ask ourselves, why these two? What is it so important about these two that God wants to reveal himself through? What is it about these two people that Luke and Mark's gospel want to share? In a crowd of thousands, why are they singled out? Well, I think for first, to start, there's some really interesting correlations here that I want to draw your attention to. The first is is how relatable these two people are depending on who you are in your circumstance. Jairus, he's a man. He's, He's a leader of the synagogue. He's marked by cleanliness. You cannot be dirty and be the leader of the synagogue organizing all of the sacrificial things, right? Cleanliness, he's clean. He's responsible. It's a big deal. It's a big job. Responsibility. Upper class status. People are looking to him. This is someone that has a great reputation and might I even add, probably for most of his life has had it figured out. This is someone who has a talent for resources. And yet, in all of his security... He can't stop death. In all of his security, try as he might, his 12-year-old daughter is dying. In all of the efforts that he's put into his life to maintain a type of status and a type of structure for his house, for his family, for his life, for the people around him, is just slipping away from him as he watches his daughter die. The insecurity that he feels is tremendous. As a man marked by cleanliness and status, he's completely lost in desperation. And then on the other hand, 
we have a woman who isn't even given a name. And this is probably because to, it's probably meant to further indicate that she was a nobody in this. She was nobody in this town. This is a woman marked unclean for bleeding for 12 years. Try as she might. She spent all of her money to get fixed, all of her money to have doctors help her and nothing would happen. And so she is left hopeless. She's left rejected by society over something that she couldn't even help. Listen to it this way. This is someone who hasn't been invited to dinner in 12 years. Someone who hasn't been invited to dinner. Someone who hasn't been invited just for fellowship. Because if she were to sit on anything, the law tells us that it's unclean and that no one else could sit in that spot. Totally outcasted, totally alone, totally helpless and desperate in a different kind of way. She was lonely. She was seeking to heal her condition any and every way she could. And when we think about Jairus' daughter, and we think about this woman, one has 12 years of life, now suddenly slipping away. The other has 12 years of, of misery that seems to be lost and ongoing forever. And what we find in this moment is how two dramas are converging into one moment with Jesus. Whoever you identify with, fragments of identifying with, whether you've had a life of security when suddenly a circumstance has popped up beyond your control that seems to throw everything out of proportion. And it's like desperate pleas to grab onto anything that you can. This story's for you. And whether you have been someone who's lived a life of seeing the same hopeless instant carry on throughout your life, this story's for you. Whether it's 12 years of life suddenly slipping away or it's 12 years of misery, when Jesus steps on the scene, things change. Amen? Jesus meets us in these stories of desperation to reveal our need to showcase his action. That's why these are here. Jesus reveals our need to showcase his action. I remember feeling really uncomfortable like several, several years ago. Um, it was this Facebook meme of like this, this painting. It was a nice painting, but I didn't like the meme. The, the painting was of Jesus, and he's like sitting on a park bench, you know? He's like casually talking to this like kid, and he looks all upset, and he's kind of hunched over. And they're sitting on this park bench, and like the, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm, I'm pretty accurate, so just follow along with me. The, the teenager's like, gee, I'm sad, you know? He's, I'm sad about something. And Jesus, this meme says, well, Look at, the, look at the trees. Do you see that an acorn or branch was falling, but I moved you away from it? 
to stop you from this. You did not know. Do you see the puddle over here? This puddle was going to get your feet wet and you were going to slip, but I prevented you from doing that and I moved you around the puddle. This other tree has blocked the rain that was going to fall down on you and get you all wet and ruin your clothes. And then the meme at the end, it says like, gee, thanks, Jesus. I didn't even know. And I was like, I don't feel that way at all as being a Christian. If anything, I feel more pain sometimes. If anything, I feel like more uncomfortable because now my, my, my understanding and personal sense of a spiritual responsibility is now at play. Is Jesus really like this bodyguard kind of moving us away from different uh, circumstances and moments? Maybe sometimes. But most of the time, Jesus is inviting us to bring him into the pain and the discomfort of everyday life, of stepping in the puddle, of getting rained on, of having a branch fall and bust your head. As a Christian, there isn't an invisible force field that shields me from pain. There's an invisible force field that shields me from every circumstance, every bad circumstance. But when we read the scriptures, we see story after story describing not an an abstract people, but us, real people, raw people, people who have been hurt, people who have been pained, people who have suffering, who have wounds, and Jesus meeting them and revealing their needs to showcase his action. And that's what we find in this story, a Savior who acts on our behalf. So let's go back to the woman and just see how her simple touch of faith made history. Mark chapter 5, he does, a really, he does a really good job of just giving us a little bit more um, context behind what she's saying. So I wanted to read this to you. This is Mark 5, verse 25 and 26, where it says, Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. So this is someone who's been, you know, suffering from all of the different procedures and and tests and everything, right? That's also was pain that's also painful. She spent everything she had and she was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. So I, I like including that because I want you to see the desperation that she has. But seeing Jesus, she thought, if I could just touch the hem of his robe, I'll be made well. So we got to be careful when we're reading this to, in, to interpret her act of faith because it isn't necessarily this big, noble act that we, might think, that we think it might be. Because for one thing, her risk that she was planning on made Jesus unclean in the process. So just keep that, in part, that part in mind, Right? So in a way, this, this attempt to be healing is kind of a selfish move because she wants to be healed at the cost of Jesus being unclean. She also didn't quite understand 
how he would heal her. She just came in. She just assumed something would happen, right? Even though there were thousands of hands, all of them, presumably, as, they're, as he's working his way through the crowd, all these hands touching him, presumably, she just thought, no one else seems to be changing around, around the area, but it's going to happen to me. But despite whatever motivations that she had, she was right in that he did heal her faith. He did heal her instantly. And just think and picture with me the relief that she would have had. This longing finally came, and she knew instantly that she was healed. Joy filling her whole self for about five seconds. Because then Jesus stopped. Immediately. Verse 45. Who touched me? Just imagine the hush that fell over the crowd and like everybody who did touch him was like, you know, (laughs) gotta go over here, right? And then everybody denied it after it just said everyone was pressing in on him, right? It was not me. Then Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone from me. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. Listen to this part. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason that she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith was ununiformed, yes. Her faith was a a little superstitious, yes. Imperfect, yes. But it was real. And it was simple. And that was plenty for Jesus to see and honor. This past week, Amy's been out of town and she, she took our baby with him and so I've had the three kids here One of my favorite parts of being a dad happened this past week, and it's when when me and my kids reached the escalators. I was taking them to the movies down in the the mall, and um, every time we reach the escalators, it's probably one of my favorite moments of being a dad, because every kid so far has like learned to get on the escalators differently, right? When Gabe, when he was like two, two or three, and he started going to the escalators, he did the whole elf thing where he would put like one foot on and keep one foot on the ground, and then his body would like do the splits up, right? That was Gabe. Elliot, he tried like the spider monkey approach where he would grab onto the handle and then kind of put his feet on the metal siding, but the metal doesn't move. So he just kind of like gets dragged upwards and that. But what I found, and what's still happening, which makes it to be one of my favorite parts of being a dad, is that Tavia, Tavia takes the run-in-place approach, where she runs up to the, to the escalator and then stops, and then just does this, like, gets into hype mode, you know, as it's just kind of going up. 
And then she does this, and each one of them have done the same thing. They hold their hand up to me without even like looking for me to take my hand and help and so I can lead them on. Once they grab it, there's a new security, right? One of my favorite things, why I love escalators. But when she reaches for my hand, when Tavia has reached for my hand, she isn't contemplating my size and support technique, right? She's not pondering the wonder of, what, of how I might be so gracious as to reach my hand out and grab her. It's simple. Daddy will get me on the escalator. It's a simple security. And it's enough. I am glad to do it. I am glad to see that she needs me. Friends, Jesus is the same with us today. A beginning faith is often filled with some mixed motives and some missed misconceptions. But even a foggy faith is often the true beginning to an authentic faith. Amen? All of us have learned, have been corrected. But faith, even when simple, is real. A good Bible trivia fact that I want you to, to, to look at here is that this is the only woman that Jesus ever called daughter in all of the Gospels. Isn't that powerful? That really moved me to think of how tender and how sensitive he is to her. But let me ask you a question. Why then, if Jesus is being so tender and so sensitive to her and to her needs, why would he expect her to share her deepest shame in front of everyone? Why, in front of all those people, would she be the one who has to say that? Two reasons. The first is because he wanted to show her that it was not magic of her healing, but it was faith. It was not superstition, but it was her faith, as simple and as real as it was, that saved her. But the second is is that Jesus was not exposing her shame. Jesus was exposing her faith. And the same for us, Jesus exposes our faith to showcase his grace. Friends, know this, in a sea of a million hands, Jesus will see the one that is raised in faith. We should, and we should only be afraid of one thing when we think about bringing our shame to Jesus The only thing that we should be afraid of is that we would let him pass without reaching out. Now, if we go back to Jairus, who's just been sitting, standing next to Jesus watching all of this while his daughter is dying, right? We get to see in this moment that this whole time we see this trial of faith unfolding with him. So urgency is definitely an understatement of how he he felt, right? 
because he too came in desperation. He came with a problem that he needed Jesus to fix, right? And seeing Christ's compassion for this woman, man, his hope, it's soaring now. Jesus really does heal the sick. He came when he hadn't seen anything before, but now that he has in front of him, okay, Jesus, let's, let's get a move on here. We gotta keep it going because my daughter is sick. Right? Even in this newfound kind of hope, his daughter is dying. He wants to get Jesus there. But he's excited to see what's going to happen for about five seconds. And then him too, someone comes to him from his house. Verse 49. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from Jairus' house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, Don't be afraid. Only believed. Only believe and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, Stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. So I think there are two, so I'm going to pause there. I think there are two trials of faith that we can identify with Jairus here. The first is seeing time as fixed and as dwindling, right? His daughter is dying. Jairus needs Jesus. He believes he can save her, but time is the fixed authority. How many of us see time as a fixed authority? I know it's certainly me. I was challenged by this text because I often, I too often assume that time is a fixed authority that even Jesus can't suspend. But here we see Jesus above time. He is not bending to it, racing against all stressed out, trying to get to this, to this daughter. But everything is on his schedule. They're exactly where they need to be. Time bends to Jesus. He is the authority. He is the power. But the second trial is believing that lie of verse 50. Listen to this. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Don't bother the teacher anymore. That is an insidious lie, friends. Satan will try to throw that out any time of the day. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Your sin, your circumstance, it's done. It's permanent. There's no going back. You might as well give up. Don't bother him anymore. You won't change. What's done is done. I don't know if you've heard these phrases in your mind as you've journeyed in your faith. But what does Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2 say? Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. I want to add in verse 2, for by it, our ancestors won God's approval. 
And I added verse two, so that you would know that your trials of faith are not unique. And each of us is susceptible to that lie of you're too far gone, don't bother Jesus anymore. Others have gone before us. Others have been swept up into the story of grace and continue to be tempted and endured the same trials but persevered. Jesus, in this moment, amidst this trial of faith, is calling Jairus to a deeper, higher faith. He may be calling you right now even to the same. Do you trust him in what's urgent? Maybe, but do you trust him in what's hopeless? Do you trust him in what's alarming and what's scary? Then trust him in what's irreversible. Jesus is always more than we can imagine. Amen? Jesus relieves our distress to showcase his love. That means that in any trial, in any circumstance, in anything, any time I hear that lie, I know it's not true because I know all of the, the saints who have come before me who have had the same type of trials and I can come to Jesus in the midst of it and he will bring me in and surprise me to a deeper faith. But let's keep reading to see how this story ends with this, a testimony of faith. Verse 53, it says, they laughed at him, meaning Jesus. They laughed at Jesus because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Now, when we look at this chapter in itself, this is a capstone moment of this interconnected stories. The first one was when Jesus controlled nature, the winds and the waves. Jesus has the power over nature. Then the second moment is when Jesus heals the man with thousands of demons within him. And at Jesus' word, he calmed the seas. At Jesus' word, he calmed this man and brought him into life again. Jesus has the power over nature. Jesus has the power over the supernatural. And now in this moment, as the capstone moment, we see that Jesus has the power over sickness and death. And at his word, where there was death is now life. Our testimony of faith is a lifelong discovery that Jesus is far more than we can imagine. And even more striking than that is that shortly after this display of power that Jesus has shown to everyone, he would then give it up on the cross so that we, sinners and sufferers, just like Jairus, 
just like the woman, might be brought into his story through faith. Jesus confronts death to showcase his power. Jesus said in in John 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I love that question that he asks. Because that's the question we all must ask ourselves when we're confronted with trials. Are they here to take us out? Or might God be using them to strengthen our faith? Do our circumstances seem like it's lasted so long and it's so fixed that we might as well not bother Jesus? Or do you believe there is more that Christ is doing? This is how he strengthens our faith. By being the savior that you can trust in every circumstance, no matter how bleak. He strengthens our faith by showcasing his action, his grace, and his power, and we love him for it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.